Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took He had an old boombox with a tape. And he hit that tape and put the microphone there, and it was Johnny Paycheck saying, take this job and shove it. So I don't recall there being a, a, a formal vote, but let's put it this way. It wasn't a secret ballot vote. It wasn't a show of hands vote. It was how many in favor, and that's all you needed. It was like screaming, yelling, standing on chairs. They were ready. They were tired of it. On July 2nd, 1978, firefighters in Memphis, Tennessee went out on strike, one of several groups of firefighters across the country who struck that year. On today's show, which originally aired on the IAFF podcast from the International Association of Firefighters, two Memphis firefighters tell the story of the conditions that led up to the strike, the obstacles they faced on the job, and how firefighters in Memphis reached their boiling point and walked off the job not once, but twice in the summer of 1978. And on this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1930. That was the day some 1,300 labor radicals and Communist Party supporters assembled in Chicago to establish the National Unemployed Council. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. Lord thinks he's cool. One of these days I'm gonna blow my top and that sucker, he's gonna pay. Lord, I can't wait to see their faces when I get the nerve to say, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. A woman done left and took all the reasons. I was working for You better not try to stand in my way As I'm walking out the door Take this job and shove it I ain't working here no more Take this job and shove it Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the IFF Podcast. Mark Treglio here uh, along with Doug Stern. Today we're shifting gears on this episode wanted to go back a, a little old school and talk about uh, history. And a lot of times I feel that as firefighters come on the job and they progress through the ranks, they forget about the history. A lot of times you'll talk about recruit classes and the benefits that are won by unions that recruits really think that stuff just falls off trees and the city's glad to give us a pension, glad to give us a contract in many cases or a nice pay raise. And that's not the case. And those benefits that are won are, are hard fought and they're won by unions. And today joining us are two hardcore union leaders out of Memphis. And we're going to talk about a firefighter strike in Memphis in 1978. Uh, firefighters don't strike anymore. There are very few locals that have that in their arsenal to do. But there was a time and place where there were strikes. There were firefighter strikes and you know, people had tough decisions to make back then. So I want to introduce our guest. First guest is IFF 14th District Vice President Danny Todd, currently the longest serving senior member of the IFF Executive Board and local 1784 president out of Memphis, Thomas Malone. Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing great, Mark. Glad to be on the show with uh, you and Doug today. Yeah, great. Looking forward to this. this is a lot of history, as you said. 
So before we jump into the strike, let's talk about your backgrounds on the Memphis Fire Department. Just tell us when you came on the job, where you served, some of the good things you got out of the job, and where it's taking you today. All right. This is Danny. I came on in 1972 going through rookie school. My first day on shift was uh, January 1st, 1973, and that's when the Memphis Fire Department actually went from a uh, 72-hour work week to a 56-hour work week. And I was assigned to a truck company at headquarters. Uh, that was Engine 5. Engine 9 was also located there. And my early years, <clears throat> I worked there at that. Later, got moved around, worked mostly downtown. And then in the latter part of my career, moved out to other stations and then eventually made my way to the Union Hall. The local here has union release. So when you become an officer of the local, you're on release and uh, work out of the Union Hall under the direction of the fire department director. One thing I would state is to for my union career, I was lucky that I uh, was sent to headquarters. I certainly didn't know it at the time. But as it turned out, the leader of the strike in 1978, our president, Kieran Huddleston, who later became 14th district vice president preceding me, was there in that engine house. And also Sam Posey, who later became president of the local, uh, vice president and then president of the local, and also state association president, was that same engine house. So it's a little, I guess, lucky for me that here in, in one engine house in the city of Memphis, two international district vice presidents and a state association president came out of the same fire station. Did you guys all work together on the same shift? Yes, we did. No, we all work together on the same shift, and they're the ones that encouraged me. They said, come on, rookie, we're going to the union meeting, and that's how I got started. So You were going to union meetings whether you wanted to or not, little did you know. <laughs> they said, here's the card, sign up, we're headed to the union meeting, and, and uh, you need to come with us, and I did. Great. Yeah, this is Thomas Malone. I came on back a little before Danny. I came on in 1969. We actually back then did have a 72-hour work week. We had two shifts. I went to uh, what was called Midtown at Fire Station 7. Back when I came on, you went through rookie school until 4 o'clock, and then at 7 o'clock, you went to the fire station and worked from 7 to 7 the next morning, got off, got a shower at the station, and went back to school the next day. So we were, after about two weeks in school, we started going to the fire station at night and working through the night. So we got an early experience in firefighting and actually some of the shit that they used to do to us. So I was fortunate to have a large fire station. There was three piece of equipment there. Everybody there was fairly young except the captains at that time. And it was one of those stations where, and the battalion that we were in was fairly young because it was an active battalion. So there was a lot of union stuff. It actually came about with the fact that we just got tired of what was actually going on. Then we started talking behind the scenes. And actually, I became, I signed up, came on in 69, and I signed up as an IFF member in June of 1970. We actually were chartered in 71. So for about a year, we were signing people up going behind the scenes and, and working. And, and then actually some of us were getting fired for going to union meetings, but it was a, a pretty active time. It was just the right time. We had a lot of people that were coming back from the service being in the military. And a lot of people came back uh, from Vietnam. And it was one of those times where 
people wasn't used to taking the stuff that the fire department did. Now we took it, but we were steady working on trying to figure out how we were going to to fix it. We didn't know anything about the IFF until oh, probably six months later. So that's how we got started. I, I worked there and was transferred just prior to the strike and went to another very active union house. So I, like Danny, was fortunate to have a, not necessarily what I would call strong union people, but they were strong people that supported the union. So it's kind of my start. And and then the rest has been just a windmill for the whole time because some of the old rules and regulations that we worked under, such as they would, you had to do stuff off duty and everything else. And if you didn't do it, then they suspended you. So a lot of those things precipitated into the union being formed and having a huge turnout at the union meetings, as Danny just talked about. It was not uncommon in those days for us to have a thousand people at the union meeting. Wow. What exactly do you mean by this, that you weren't going to let them get away with the stuff they were actually doing to you? I mean, like you, you had to be there. We, our shift started at seven. You had to be there prior to seven. You were lined up in full uniform outside the equipment for five or 10 minutes and you were, you were checked out like it was a military thing. The rules and regulations were just so tremendous geared towards management. We had to wash the tires every day, whether we made a run or not at four thirty, four o'clock rather. We had on an inclement weather, we had to hose the equipment down, chamois it off after every single run. I was at an active station and so you were up when you started running at night, you spent all your time shamming and cleaning off the equipment. Then you had to get on a creeper like a mechanic, get up under the equipment and coal oil everything up underneath there with a coal oil rag while they sit out there and gave you territory schooling. The captain would be in a chair. Just things like that you had to, when you got off duty, if they decided you needed to go inspect buildings, we went and inspected buildings. If they thought that there was some plugs that needed flushing the next morning, they would send you to a certain area to flush plugs. And so just things like that. You had no, no time off. You had what, what we called a Kelly day, but you couldn't leave the house. All of these type things that people don't even realize nowadays that, that occurred, the things that they think is, uh, are terrible now seem minuscule and sometimes in what we used to do. It was a paramilitary organization with very strict guidelines from the top. And if you didn't like it, I was fired twice at fires. The chief got mad because he didn't like what was happening and fired the whole company. Like in the middle of the fire? Oh, yeah. They, they fired you at the fire. Get that company out of here. It's just, But they'd usually hire you back by the next day. So the worst time of my life is when I got fired and, and we were keeping the union a secret. And, and I got fired at 10 in the morning. I sat at headquarters all day. And the chief came in and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, you just fired me. I need my job. So he made me jog from headquarters where Danny used to work down to Midtown where I worked. So <laughs> just to keep my job. So it was not a hard uh, push for the young guys like me that we were either going to quit or do something to make things better. And thank God we chose to make things better. And Doug, right. when, he, when he says he had to do inspections on his day off or flush hydrants on the day off, that's without any extra pay. So just as you leave the firehouse here, catch these plugs and, have a good day. Or we're going to inspect this building tomorrow, especially downtown. We're going to do this building inspection, and we expect you to be here, and you had to show up with no pay. And that was, wow. a, that, that was a regular thing on Sunday morning where the old captains didn't want to go home and work, wake their wives up. So usually at 7, 15, 7, 20, 
we would leave to go to one or two buildings and come back and be through by about nine o'clock. Also, the wow. the administration decided if they the incumbent mayor if they wanted you to go out okay. and hand, hand out flyers on the corner for the incumbent mayor, you were told to do so. They couldn't really tell you who to vote for because obviously that's uh, your choice. But they would tell you who to work for in the old days, whether you liked it, liked that politician or not. Wow. And now, now we have trouble even doing it. Back then, you were forced to do it. Oh, yeah. You both probably remember the FDIC conventions. It, it, it used to be here in Memphis, and you were assigned uh, a job to do during that convention on your days off. And mine was to use my car and drive back and forth to the airport, pick people up, and bring them back to downtown. I usually got assigned to that because I talked a lot. It was hilarious. And now that you look back on it, it, it was a routine thing until we got the union going. Actually, when the union actually got formed, that's when we, the chief that was so hard, who actually was a good chief in, on the fire grounds, that's when he actually turned around and said, there'll never be a union here. That's what he fired me for because he said there'd never be a union here. And uh, he actually ended up losing his job when we actually got the union formed. So, Mark, back to your question. Yeah, we've read about the 1920 strike, but uh, we were original charter member of the International Association of Firefighters, Local 39. And they did have a strike right after that in 1920, and they brought in a, a bunch of volunteers and, and broke the union. Then in the 30s, there was another strike, and again, they broke the union. And then I think our history here as Local 1784 now goes back to the 1968 sanitation workers strike where Martin Luther King was killed. And then just a few years later, we formed, or as Thomas said, the guys that are on the job then decided, hey, look what the sanitation workers did. It's time for us to step up and get our union going back again. It took a lot of courage for Thomas and the guys that were on the job then to push for this and get the local going again. But I think the birth of a Public employee unions in the city goes right back to the sanitation worker strike yeah. of a 68. Yeah, just prior to me coming on at 69, in 1968, there was another push to try to form a union, and they beat that down. And it was a perfect storm after that because in 1969, we were going to have an annexation out in Whitehaven, and, and so we had to hire multiple classes. So in the year 1969, we had three or four rookie classes that were hired that year. And so we had a lot of people, a lot of young people that that had just coming back from the union, from the service, or had worked at possibly at a truck line when they were younger or other places that were acclimated to a union. And so that I believe that year right there with the influx of people is the reason that the union actually got footing and moved forward. As far as the strike, the it was really amazing just a few years later how even the people that were not young, uh, even though I had a few years on, we had people with 19, 20 years that struck that were still remembering the old days and was, was very strongly adamantly opposed to anything going back to those days. That was one, one thing that was really fascinating back then was a 19, 20-year guy put his job on the line to go out with all of uh, us younger people. That's good. That's awesome material right there, material. What I'd like to get into is we've done a great job on the history of how the conditions were in the 60s and the early 70s, but things apparently didn't get better. Things apparently got worse. And 
as the strike came, both of you were pretty much seasoned veterans by then. What were some of the factors in 75, 76, 77, and and 78 that really led up to this being the final straw? That's it. We're striking. I'll I'll take the lead and then let Thomas come in. But I think this built up over a number of years. It wasn't just a one-issue thing. We actually got a contract back in, in 71. We're building on that contract, negotiating with the city. But the way negotiations work, the city would start negotiations sometime around June the 1st. Uh, Now, keep in mind, the city's fiscal year is uh, July 1st, so they start a new budget or a new fiscal year July 1st. Well, we were negotiating right up until June the 30th, and the budget had already been set. So by the time we finished negotiations, the budget had been set and the salaries had been set. That was one thing. The salaries were low. I made $753 a month when I came on. So it was a a wage that wasn't a livable wage at that time. So the way they negotiated was one thing. And then I think one of the big pushes for the strike, which we get into the strike, was in in 75. I think our union leader at that time, our president, made a mistake and agreed with the city to allow a vote on whether our captains would uh, remain in the bargaining unit or would be removed from the bargaining unit, and they dangled a little small raise in front of the captains. And the union agreed to allow that vote to take place, and they did vote vote to get out of the bargaining unit. That led up to another vote that the city attempted to do in 1978, which we can get into when we get into the 78 thing. But trying to bust the union, I think, uh, that was what they were attempting to do because in 1978, when they attempted without the cooperation of the union and, and, and we said we wouldn't even recognize their vote on the lieutenants getting out of the bargaining unit, then what they were attempting to do, all three of our principal officers of the union were lieutenants. So it's not hard to see what their attempt was, divide and conquer and make this union go away. So there's a lot of frustration built up with each period. Each year we came forward uh, with the amount of wages they were offered, the way they were offering the wages. We still had a lot of discipline going on within Mm. the department. Working conditions improved some, but hadn't improved a a whole lot. And they just had enough. And so it came to a head in 1978. It all came to a head at, at one time with the frustrations that occurred. Well, you have to remember one thing, as I stated earlier, just how beat down we were from a standpoint under certain conditions in certain engine houses, you hated to come to work. I mean, you were so fearful of of the way you were treated. But as we started negotiation, just to show you how bad off we were, the number one thing that was on the first contract we had, the number one item to be negotiated was hair and mustache. The city did a cartwheel on, on that one because they weren't giving any raises anyway. As Danny said, I started off at $540 a month, and usually they would take some of that through some form of disciplinary action, suspensions or whatever. But it was each year we would go into negotiation with a promise that this would be our year. And as Danny stated, it was never even an option. The budget was already set. And this went on for about four or five years when we, as Danny stated, we lost the captains out of the union, but we still had some that were loyal to the union. We had a bunch that was not. So therefore we went right back. We were regressing back to a lot more disciplinary action because they wasn't in the union. So the whole thing there was the whole attitude on the job 
was, we don't care. It, 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 each year came along, we had multiple thoughts. One was, we don't really give a shit anymore. And the other one was, I'll just have to go nail some nails or cut some more grass or something to try to make ends meet. And although those factors eventually clashed because we were, we, we were able to get some, a few things in the contract that were union benefits. So then we had a big divide of union and non-union personnel. So we had to overcome all those things and the city played it right to their advantage on everything they did. And of course, then you throw in promotions and that, everything just went to hell in a handbasket there. The one thing that really struck me that I'll never forget was when the IFF came in and we actually did form under the IFF and they came in and there was a big piece in the paper, IFF steamrolls into Memphis and all that. And then the IFF went away and we didn't ever see anybody. We didn't know enough about anything to know that we were supposed to call and get somebody down here. And so we didn't see any IFL personnel from 1971 until 1977. So we did not have the benefit of the knowledge of the IFF. Obviously, they were not as strong as they are today. But once they came into town and we really started working things out, then it was just a matter of time for something was going to be done and it was gonna, something was going to come to a head because Danny said, everybody had enough. We'd gotten to the point where there was other jobs around and it wasn't like a lot of us were dedicated to the fire service. Like in, in a lot of cases up North where the, your family was firefighters in front of you. I didn't know anything about the fire department. When I came on, it was just a job. So eventually you could see the, the steam starting to, to come off the sidewalk and it started to build up more and more. And then 78 was just the perfect storm that hit. So let's talk a little bit more about that perfect storm. And there had to be the final straw where the leadership just went to the members and said, that's it. We need to do this. And, and how did that vote go down? Actually, and you said earlier, uh, we were seasoned veterans. I guess we got seasoned real quick, but I was on the negotiating team and I'd only been a union member for uh, five years. And Thomas had been on less than 10. We had a, had a mix of personnel there. I think we had the older guys who had been through a lot of, of the crap in the 60s and us younger guys who came on and uh, really didn't like the working conditions and listen to some of the older guys' stories and what was happening. But the final straw, I think, was it was a buildup. And we kept telling them, you got to do better than this. You can't just throw the number out on the table the last day of negotiation said, that's it. That's all you're getting and not listen to us and, and not really uh, try to make things better for us. So I, I think the uh, final straw was th them trying to take a vote to get the lieutenants out, the city attempting to do that. Uh, we saw that how that game was going to be played out with all three of our officers, as I said, being lieutenants. So we couldn't reach an agreement at the table. We wanted to do a one-year uh, contract, and the city wanted a multiple-year contract, but we wanted a wage reopener, and they didn't want to reopen wages, so we knew they were trying to lock us in. So we came back from negotiations that afternoon. There was a meeting. Uh, we were at a labor temple at that time. It was a round building where most of labor organizations were in the same building. Where is it? Where is it? Rainbow including some, uh, yeah, that was 2881 Lamar, yeah, correct? Was Rainbow. Yeah. yeah. And so we had a meeting hall that would hold about a thousand people when negotiating team walked back in. And we had, at that time, we had uh, Lou Peronis, the international used to have a staff rep program prior to our district field service rep program. We had staff reps and Lou Peronis staff rep was with us. 
and the place was packed, standing room only. And Kieran Huddleston, our lead negotiator president at the time and later became 14th district vice president, came in the meeting hall and he had an old boom box with a tape. And he hit that tape and put the microphone there and it was Johnny Paycheck saying, take this job and shove it. So I don't recall there being, uh, uh, there was a formal vote, but let's put it this way. It wasn't a secret ballot vote. It wasn't a show of hands vote. It was how many in favor. And that's all you needed. It was like screaming, yelling, standing on chairs. We got pictures, people standing up in their chairs. It was, they were ready. They were tired of it. They were ready for it. So the strategy then became, uh, and I'll let Thomas talk about that, how we worked the strategy and how we decided the ultimate decision to go on strike was, yeah. wasn't was made until the next morning. This was June 30th. Of course, our contract expired. New contract supposed to go in July 1st. We couldn't reach <clears> an agreement. So I'll let Thomas tell you how we decided <laughs> when the ultimate decision to go on strike would be made. Let me regress just back a minute, guys. If you have to understand, in those days, we were all young, and the union meeting night was the way a lot of the married guys got out for the night. We would have the union meeting, and then there were places around town that we all went drinking, and and it was, you know, usually drank and fought and went back to work the next day and laughed about it and everything else. A lot of them started drinking before they got to the union meeting. And so this particular night, the negotiating team was downtown, and I was like a station steward. So we were milling around. There was tons of people there. As Danny said, there was well over 1,000. It seated 1,000, and we've got pictures where all those standing room around the wall. So I stood at the back by design and was going to talk on the mic. But to back that up, early on we had two guys come in here before Lou came in, Charlie Kasut out of Florida and Percy Clark out of Canada. And they were actually assigned here in Memphis for a while. And basically they were helping us recruit and do the stuff. And we would have meetings every month prior to this and they would be there. And this, everything was building up and everything was building up. And so that particular night, was, as I look back on it, it was really hilarious. We didn't like long meetings. Because the whole purpose was get to the meeting, get the business done, get out of there and go drink and, and, and drink most of the night. This particular night, the negotiating team was down and everybody was milling around and there was a lot of discussion. Look, if they don't do that, if they, if they do this shit to us this year, we're going to strike. And nobody had even, but we had actually prepared some things for the strike, such as we had signs ready and different stuff. Nobody really thinking we would strike. And it was that night when Danny and Kieran all came back and he put the, the microphone to that boom box and, and it said, take this job and shove it. The place went wild. And Kieran had brought another union leader back with him that night. He was the president of Ask Me. And when we went through, the, when the negotiating team told what, what had gone on and everything, and they let the reverend, he was a reverend, and they let him talk. And he got up and was talking and he got excited. And all of a sudden he rips his sports coat off and rips his towel off, throws it back in behind him and says, we ain't going to cut no grass. We ain't going to pick up any garbage and the monkeys are going to go hungry in the zoo. I'll never forget that long as I live. Everybody went nuts. The whole place erupted and everybody was high-fiving and jumping around. And 
you heard Danny talk about Sam Posey, who was our vice president at the time. He, he and I were best of friends. He says, Tombo, you better get up there. So I got up there and got the microphone, and I started hollering, whoa, whoa, point of order. I didn't even know what none of that meant. We got everybody quiet, and I said, I know that we're talking about striking, but I know everybody's going to be drunk tonight, so I want to make sure that we're going to do this right. So we're going to – I make a motion. We report back out here at 5 o'clock in the morning. If we get a big enough turnout, then we're going to strike. If we don't get a big enough turnout, we're going to work. So everybody calmed down and said, that makes sense. So we did it. As Danny said, there was no official votes. Everybody just – because you couldn't hear. That next morning, we met back out in the parking lot, and myself thinking we'd never go on strike, and cars started coming from all directions at 5 o'clock in the morning. And we had over 1,200 people show up that morning. And there was no official vote, never. We said, we're on strike. Call the stations. Tell them to get ready. Here we come. So – that's how the vote went, and that's how it came down. So it was something else. Yeah, our, our house stewards, as Thomas was one, started with instructions to call the stations and inform the on-duty crews we were on, would be on strike. As he said, that we gathered at 5. This is probably around 6, 6.30, when we knew we had an overwhelming support yeah. to do so. <clears throat> Word went out to the fire stations, and guys started uh, leaving the fire station even before their 7 o'clock shift ended. Yeah, we, we, so. everybody went by and picked up a sign, and your job was supposed to report to the station you were assigned to except for some of the stewards who were going to be runners. But immediately stopped. You immediately put on your union shirts yeah. and uh, got your sign, and you were responsible for setting up a picket at your fire station. So the picket started. Each station set up their own rotation system on uh, picketers, so we had somebody there 24-7. So that's kind of the night it all happened and the next morning how it happened. So now this strike is underway. How were the early days of the strike? How was it received? How did the fire department even operate? We had early days. I think we were setting at around 1,200. Oh, no. Union. Way more but there were 1,600 personnel on the fire department, just over 1,600. The newspapers reported they had about 200 people remain on duty. Most of those were chiefs and uh, captains. captains, some uh Non-union people who never joined you in Tennessee, even back then, were under right to work, so you didn't have to be a union member to benefit from the bargaining unit, what you got. So some lieutenants were not in and others. So there was some, but we gathered. I think our membership increased in the first two days of the strike. We signed up nearly 200 to 300 new members. Mm-hmm. So... That's the way it went in the early days. Uh, fire started almost immediately, of course, in the media and uh, police director. We were accused of setting fires, which was not true. Bacon houses started on fire, and then a teenager started. Later on, we learned it was a teenager started a fire at one of the public libraries. And so by noontime, fires had started. Within three days, I think there were over 200 fires in the three days we were on strike. We went back to work July 4th under a court order, but we were on strike from July the 1st through July the 3rd, had over 200 fires. They had about 200 people working in at that time. I'm not sure about the amount of stations. We were about 46 to 48 fire stations, right? 44. 44. 44 fire stations, so... A lot of fire stations were not manned. 
we we had what we call goon squads. Uh, we had pickup trucks, and we so so we had equipment to, to actually respond on hospitals, nursing homes, and a few places like that. And and we had radios, so we knew where the fires were, and they had the chiefs and captains, and then they had some, as Danny said, some non-union. Then we had some people that were supposedly in the union that had gotten calls from captains and chiefs saying, hey. You need to come and work because it's going to decide on whether you get promoted. The promotion was a big deal. We had several people out there, but they gave, but they were worn out really quick. As Danny said, the fires were overwhelming. A lot of the old captains, we thought it was old then at 50, but they were out there and they weren't used to none of that stuff. And it was in the middle of the summer. So they were on duty indefinitely. So they were making fires all day and fires all night. And they just wore out. I never will forget one of them was on TV and he says, I'm tired but proud. And yeah, I, and I want to make th- that point Thomas made. We took some air packs from the fire stations, and we took some turnout gear, and had monitoring or radio dispatch. And so, if there was a report of a person trapped, or he said it was a hospital or what else, we were responding and getting there before the fire department crews. And if there was nobody, there was no loss of life during those three days for many of the fires. And so we responded to make sure the citizens had some level of protection. If it was a vacant building, we didn't do anything. So so you went from July 1st to July 4th. What gets the deal done? What's the deal that gets made to bring you all back to work? The story continues, Mark. Oh, yeah. Uh, what the deal done then? We that talk, was a court order. We talk about the strike. Actually, there were two strikes in 1978. So the continuing story is we go back to work. They're going to bring in federal mediators. There were religious leaders that had got involved, and uh, some business leaders had been calling the mayor's office and said, we need to solve this. They promised for discussions, and we were under a court order with heavy fines if we didn't go back to work. So a lot of our guys didn't want to go back, but under the court order, we went back and uh, continued with discussions and negotiations. As uh, Thomas said, we had the other uh, labor organizations. The two other biggest ones in the city representing public employees was ASME representing the sanitation workers and the police union who weren't affiliated with any uh, national organization. The police union didn't go out on, on strike with us. Sanitation workers did not go out on strike with us. So then we rock along and the discussions are continuing. We still can't reach an agreement. We are in mediation. And then come August, I'm not sure about the exact date, but about August the 13th, I think it was, or 12th or 13th, right around in there, the police union decided to go out on strike. And they wanted us to go out with them. They said, we'll wait. We'll see what happens. So they went out. But the city had had prior knowledge that this was going to happen, and they brought in the National Guard. So we had National mm-hmm. Guard troops all in our streets. And, of course, the police stayed out. They then started throwing up picket lines in front of our fire stations. And when we would not cross the picket line, so when we made a run and came back, if they were still picketing that fire station, we slept in the streets. And uh, we slept on our fire equipment in the streets. We refused to cross the picket lines, even to pull back into the firehouse. And we'd go to local restaurants and get something to eat. After about three days of the police strike in in that August, we took another vote as, as a union. And the police union, it appears they were getting ready to break the union. The crime rate had went to zero. Things were pretty calm in the city. National Guard was here. And uh, National Guard was in the streets. And so we said, we can't let another public employee union go down 
if they go down and they pick them off, then they're going to come after and pick the rest of us off. One, we still didn't have an agreement. And two, with the dire situation as it was, we voted to go out again. And uh, there was, so we had a, a second strike and that time we were out. We went out on the 15th and I think the final agreement was finally reached on August the 18th. We reached an agreement with the city. I think we went on the 13th. I think it's yeah. five days. Yeah. One of the things that Danny was talking about was when the police were getting ready to go out, as he said, we were basically living in the streets because we wouldn't cross the picket line. So they brought the National Guard in and they took over our fire stations. So... When we did go out with the police, that's when it got a little bit racy because we started having numerous fights. The old crew was back in at my station. One of the guys that didn't go out this time, he was a driver, and he had his arm hanging out the door, and somebody hit him with a baseball bat, broke his arm. There was all kind of other stuff went on. The fire started going out of control at night there. So we had fire and police both out, and it was that's when things got a little bit rowdy. We had the cops with us. Uh, they were going around with the National Guard. They had set a limit on how many you could be at, have at the picket. They were arresting firefighters and police officers. The management was with the with that National Guard. Yeah, uh, they arrested numerous members uh, that were picketing, even though we had an agreement with the city that we could have so many picketers right. at each firehouse. Uh, we had an agreement with that with the city, but the city was under curfew. So then they started sending around police command and started arresting our members and taking them to jail. And then the union had to go down and bail our members out of jail but because the city reneged on their agreement uh, on the curfew violations. And they were, they, they were arresting. They brought in some state people and different stuff. To, one of the stations that I was hell picking it at somebody set it on fire and myself and another guy put the fire out and they arrested us said we set the fire and we got scared and and put it out <laughs> they they were just using anything that they could to to load people up but it it, it got in a position during that last strike when it, when we and the police were all out that our names was not being held in the best esteem People were coming by and throwing stuff at us on the picking line and cussing and everything. And so it got pretty bad. Our numbers were pretty large then. We had somewhere between 1,700 and 1,900 people. But people had really, on the second strike, had really, they had really gotten together and we had really solidified. And in my opinion, that's when this union first started getting any teeth because everybody stuck together and then it became uh, synonymous with problems when you just say you, you need to remember 1978 and, and things would uh, ease up a little bit around the stations because a lot of the old captains, they gained respect for people because we did help them out times when there was some pretty bad fires and, and they were down and out. If there was uh, loss of, uh, any potential loss of life, our, our folks moved in until the mayor took all of our turnouts and air packs and stuff away from us. And that, again just united us even stronger because here we were doing the right thing and they stopped it. So then when the clergy came in, that's when you saw some really movement on trying to bring this thing to a resolve. One of the things that always stuck with me is when we did go back, all the fire stations that had been used and what was torn up and everything else, they were ours to try to straighten up and clean up and, and make them livable again. So it was a really bonding time there because everybody was looking at the fruits of your labor, but we had to go back in and clean these things up and do all the stuff that we normally did. 
And Mark, before we get to what brought it to an end, in the end, there's a couple other things there. One is don't want to minimize the clergy's involvement and uh, sticking with us as, as strikers and supporting us. They also did that in 1968 with the Martin Luther King sanitation worker strike. Clergy played a role in that strike and mm-hmm. in, in the ending of that strike. And the clergy played a role here in, in the in the firefighter and police strikes of 78. But one thing happened too during this police and fire strike at the same time in August. There was one night where the power went out in the whole city. Oh yeah. The city went completely dark. And you talking about being scared. I was at the union hall with one of our other negotiators on the negotiating team because we were manning the phone lines 24-7. So we actually didn't know if they had shut down the power at our building and were coming in to arrest us or what was going on or we were under attack. We just didn't know. Everything went black. And so we crawled out the back door of the building started looking around and we realized everything was black. The first thing that comes out, obviously, is all the strikers have done something to the power. As it turned out, a a guard that had been hired, a private security guard that had been hired Mm -hmm. for one of the substations actually went in there and shut the power off to the whole city. And so there was stuff that happened like that that you just can't make up. It was uh, scary at the time, but when you look back on it now, you wonder, hey, And that, when the city went dark, then all the criminal aspect came out. And if uh, you needed to break in a place, now's a good time because the whole city's dark and all the alarm systems are shut down. That was the same night that they set the fire station on fire that that, that my my buddy and myself got arrested. They said we started the fire and got scared and put it out, but somebody started it. and, And we don't really know who, but as Danny was talking about this, the whole city was dark. And all you could see throughout the whole city was fires burning. There was fires in certain parts of town, but they were educated fires. There were people that were burning down old buildings. People were setting their their failing businesses on fire, all kind of things like that. But it was fires all over the city, and and there was a curfew on. And so they started arresting people that were on the picket line that night. But as Danny said, that was an eerie. Nobody knew what had happened until later on. So we thought, what crazy son of a bitch went out and and shut the power off? Because they were, the frenzy was at that level between fire and police. But as all this was going on and we were becoming stronger together, we were being hated more and more by the citizens of the city. And as Danny said, when the clergy came in, there was a Catholic Bishop Dozier who actually did more to settle the strike, in my opinion, than all these others. A lot of people took credit for it, but it was something that our people, the very first time that we went on strike, uh, after a payday passed and we didn't get a check, a lot of people were wondering, what the hell's going on? We didn't get a check. I said, boys, you're not working. You're not getting a check if we're not working. So we had uh, a lot of people that didn't know what was going on. There was a lot of things that happened that that actually gave us a black eye in, in some things. We did have some people that got caught with gas cans and stuff and going over to vacant apartments. We did have uh, one or two people that went to prison. We had two members. Two members got arrested for uh, starting fires, but that was it. And they were arrested. They lost their jobs and, and went to uh, were convicted. So. But we know a lot of businesses that started had places set on fire because it was a pretty good time to do it if you had a failing business because the obviously response time was not very good. And even when they got there, 
there wasn't a lot of, of strong effort, but mainly just covering exposure and checking for any occupancies or anything. And it was very hot in, in August. So one of the things that occurred was we didn't have people that were stored up in homes and houses and stuff, vagrants or anything, because it was so hot in there. So that was a plus on going in and doing any any size up or anything. Uh, but it was some trying times there for everybody during, the, during that time fire police, but that was one of the times that a lot of stuff happened in the city and, and it took a long time to overcome that. We did lose some benefits at the next election about the citizens on the referendum vote, but that particular night when the power went off, I, I think everybody in the city was was afraid, even the National Guard. They didn't know what was going to happen. So you lead us in, Thomas, that citizens had a referendum that took some of your benefits. How did the politics for you guys change and the negotiations and everything change post-strike, you know, was it successful overall? What kind of struggles did you have getting back from the strike? When we settled, I think it would, you would ask different members would give you a different opinion of of whether we were uh, successful or not. But what happened was we, we, again, federal mediators in, we go downtown and we're we're meeting at the uh, federal building with our federal mediators in, and obviously the business community was putting more pressure on the mayor and the clergy was putting pressure on the mayor Newspaper. To, to settle this thing. And the citizens obviously were wanting it. And to be honest, I think our guys were, as Thomas said, when you start missing checks, missing paydays, some of our guys were ready to go back to work. So how it ended is we reached an agreement there at, at in the federal mediation, and the agreement was that Basically, the the base wage didn't change. Uh, what they offered us didn't change. Uh, we did pick up what we call a, a a bonus day out of it. But the main thing that changed is they agreed at that to set up and and we got a, a wage reopener. It was three year contract, but we had a wage reopener, and they agreed that before the budget was going to be set the following year, that we would get a a panel, if you will, a fact finding panel that would come together get all the facts, we'd have a chance, and it would be 60 to 90 days before the budget was completed, and this panel would make a recommendation on what our salaries would be, and that was the main thing, is we got away from negotiating after the budget was set, and if the long-term benefit, if one thing came out of the strike that's still in, in, in place today that it has the long-term benefit for this local union is that, that we now have negotiations moved ahead of the budget and we can now negotiate economic stuff, economic things in our contract. And then the budget is set after we. And and we also were able to maneuver a dispute mechanism out of that. So we, we had some resolve to, to to go from the mayor to the full council. And a lot of people didn't look at it as successful at the time because we didn't recoup any money. We didn't get really any benefit. We got the same We got the same offer we had when we went on strike June yeah. 30th, but with a little bit of, with the bonus day and some other things right. thrown in there. But that was about it as far as the economic part of it. But the long-term effect, I think, was how we changed things. I think the long-term effect from my perspective is that we actually put teeth in the union. As you look back now, it's been a long time, but one of the things that occurred is we were able to accrue some benefits over the years through this negotiations Danny was talking about that we actually had a fact-finding panel. We, we were starting to get where you could hold over for your, for your buddy 
or we were all getting seniority bids on vacations. We were able to get some ways to get tabs off, uh, different things like that that nobody ever fathomed at the time because prior to all this, if you were one minute late, you were suspended, and you were suspended for 12 hours for one minute. And the only reason you're suspended for 12 hours is because you came in and worked the other 12 for free. So when you look back and all the older heads, when we, we look back and see some of the things that have changed at the time, and I don't want to look try to glorify a strike. I don't mean it like that because it was some really tough times on people's families. There was a lot of divorces, a lot of things that occurred. But if you as you look back from 1977 forward and you look at the, the things that we've enjoyed for multiple years, it was a direct result of the strike and the strength and the teeth that was put into Local 1784 after those times occurred. And that was going to be my last question to wrap this up is the lingering effects of the strike. And you talked about the teeth that got put into the union because of this. How about the reputation when you go to sit at the table, when you're at meetings and you're at those power lunches in Memphis? Does that still linger today? Going back, I think after the strike, we a few months in, uh, later, we hired a, uh, the local union hired a PR firm to help us with our public relations. We were already involved with the city. We had started a charity program in 1975. We were involved with United Way. We were the largest contributors to United Way in the city for public employees and groups. We were doing payroll deduction for the uh, local 1784 charity program, which was started prior to the strike. And we were giving money to uh, St. Jude Children's Hospital at that time and, and other uh, charities, but mainly St. Jude Children's Hospital. So we were involved in some charity work even before the strike. And after the strike, we had to build back our public relations. The citizens, there were a couple of votes. They they put a uh, referendum before the citizens, and we now call that our impasse referendum. And the referendum basically says uh, we can no longer go on strike. It put it into law. But what that referendum also did, it created what we now refer to as our bargaining ordinance. It created a mechanism where we now have an ordinance in the city of Memphis that identifies collective bargaining for the public employee unions, and it set those uh, deadlines and it's at the impasse, and the impasse goes to the city council. So that started that, and so the citizens voted in favor of that, one, because they didn't want another strike, but they also realized that the firefighters needed a way to resolve their disputes. Then I think the local over the years and under Thomas's leadership since uh, I left in 2000 as local union president, and Thomas was the vice president at that time, and he took over. But we've continued with our community programs and with our charity programs and building up our reputation. You have to work at it, constantly work at it. You never can take it for granted. And I I give Thomas a lot of credit. He's uh, well-respected in the business community and the labor community here in the city and and in the political community here in the city got a lot of respect and just continued with the programs that we were doing and and it built upon that and still have a charity foundation today that really started in the seventies and uh, just expanded over the years. And now, yeah, now we have a foundation, but let me back up just a little bit. When you ask how we were looked at, uh, obviously over the years, the Memphis fire department has been the number one rated service in the city obviously from 1978 on up into probably the early 80s we were really struggling because not so much of the 
of the citizens who were still pissed off in some degree, uh, some of the old city council people, but the newspaper would crucify us at every chance they got. Back in those days, we had two papers. We had one was called the Press Center. It was fairly friendly toward us. The commercial appeal, which is still going today, was so anti, they just tore us up. So it took us a while to overcome that. And as Danny said, we did that by starting to participate in neighborhood associations, charities, and we became, again, the good guys. And we've had some some up and downs, but it's just like today. Today in Memphis, the Memphis Fire Department, we're not the highest paid, but we're the number one radio service in town. So when we passed this referendum just recently to show you this is a direct correlation of the strength the union took when we passed this referendum to restore pension and insurance for firefighters, the citizens voted to tax themselves, something that I don't believe would have ever happened had we not continued the work of 1978 coming forward, had we had some ups and downs, absolutely, just like anybody. But we've continued to grow. Our local has continued to grow. We now, we go out and we visit every rookie class, spend several hours there with them, telling about the union, answering questions. We've done a lot of things. We have over 740-something retirees that still belong to this union, just out of uh, loyalty and respect for what the union has done since the strike. All of these, the majority of them, a lot of them were here. And, And so to look back then when we finished and we went back to work and all we did was work to try to clean things up, as the years have gone by, I have a little contract book in my hand. It would have never occurred if 78 hadn't occurred, and I don't believe. Yeah, it was tough times. There's been times that we've had to really try to rebuild on the image of the local, but at each point in time, it's been successful and, again, highly respected by the citizens of Memphis today even. Thank you very much for that. Any final thoughts before we close out the show? I'll close my part, guys, by saying that one of the things that you look at now is – With the strength of the IFF, state associations, local unions, and the work that's being done, we don't have to look and see where there's a need for another 1978 in Memphis. We've become more educated in in union activities. We've become more politically savvy. There's a lot of things that have occurred over the past, in in, in my life, and I've been an IFF member now 52 years, I think, 51 years working on 52, and the things that have changed at the IFF is a big contributor, in my opinion, to why we can get along now without strikes and and without the ability to strike because of the power that we've accumulated in D.C. and around the country and the support that we give each other when we have the problems, I, I think, is a strong message that strikes occurred not only here but in other places but there are a lot of things now that we can do that are a lot more effective than going out on strike and, and having bad things happen. Yeah, I think, as I said, the one thing that's changed, uh, closing thought, is that we now have a mechanism in place, and I think this is a message. We have Memphis has a good labor management program we got it we got negotiations we have contracts we have a way to resolve our disputes and we're not forced into negotiating after the budget has occurred and we still have some of the same arguments 
going forward that we had back in, in those days where they're spending a lot of money on capital improvement projects and it frustrates our members where they think they got all this money for capital improvements, but they got no money uh, for us. The wages here have improved. The benefits have improved. Uh, a lot of stuff in the contract is vacation bidding, seniority bidding for openings and things that are important to our members that are people care about. And it's not economic, but they care about those things. So we we set up a system. I'm, I never advocate for strikes, but I'm not ashamed of what I did in 1978. It's something that happened. The frustration built. It was going to happen if the city didn't change their ways, and they didn't change their ways. So I think, in a way, we were forced to do what we had to do. The thing that, that sticks with me is we're all individuals. But when fourteen to 1,600 individuals came together in 1978, they moved the ball, and they moved the ball in a positive way. A lot of negative reaction at that time, to be expected, but history will show that had a positive impact on the citizens here, and it also had a positive impact on labor relations in the city of Memphis. Well, there's one thing that's for sure that occurred and is still occurring today. The administration of the fire department today has improved the working conditions, the equipment, and everything else. And a lot of that was attributed to what occurred then and a lot of things being put on the table that that basically laid on the table but have steadily come off the table as years have passed. And right now, Memphis enjoys a great labor relationship with, with the fire department and parts of the city, not all of it. But our working conditions here are very strong. Just with the past pandemic that we went through, all of our people got got tested on duty, got shots on duty. It was unheard of in, in a lot of parts of the country, but it was due to the union work and the labor management that we have that had come out of 1978 that a lot of this stuff has occurred. So I, like Danny, are, are, I'm not only not ashamed, I'm, I'm proud of what we've accomplished since 1978. Gentlemen, I'm proud that we've had the opportunity for the two of you to come on, the leaders in this international, not just in Memphis, but the entire international. And it's been a privilege to be able to memorialize this event in, and really spread the history uh, of how things proceeded in Memphis and what you've gotten out of it. So uh, District Vice President Danny Todd, President Thomas Malone, thanks for joining us today. It's been a real privilege to, to do this episode today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Guys, it, this was eye-opening. And I, hopefully a lot of our younger members have listened to this podcast and understand the sacrifices that went into making firefighting such a great profession that it is today. Because I guarantee your efforts didn't just change Memphis. They changed all the communities around Memphis, probably most of Tennessee, as we moved on. So thank you for everything that you've done and everything you continue to do for our IFF. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, Doug, that wraps up another episode of the IFF podcast. Definitely a history lesson for the ages. Absolutely. Danny and Tom knocked it out of the park on an important subject. It was really just as as long as we've been doing it, they've been doing it longer. And I really looked at this as one of those shut up and listen type deals where That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Really, I have nothing to contribute except the microphone for them to talk into. And yep, they knocked it out of the park. They provided a great story. And, and I really hope that this gets out there. I really hope that people take this kind of story into consideration moving forward. And they understand how instances like this in the past move the union forward. 
And I hope a lot of our young members, all of our members really realize Memphis wasn't the only place that went through this. These guys did a great job explaining what they did. But there were a lot of labor strikes in the late 70s and early 80s. And like I said earlier, that's why we have what we have today as firefighters. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the IFF Podcast. Please make sure to uh, catch out all past episodes. Uh, you can catch us in any one of the stores that advertise their podcasts. And uh, catch us online at the IFF Radio Network at IFF.org. Until next time, be safe. Take care. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1930. That was the day some 1,300 labor radicals and Communist Party supporters assembled in Chicago to establish the National Unemployed Council. That spring, councils in major cities across the country held massive rallies for jobs and relief. They were responding to near-catastrophic conditions created by the stock market crash. Delegates emerged from the founding convention with an organizational structure and demands for action. These included unemployment insurance, cash and work relief, public works at union wages, free food for children of unemployed, and a moratorium on evictions. Delegates acknowledged that African Americans bore the worst of the unfolding depression. They worked to address racial discrimination as part of an integrated push for jobs and relief. Councils were established throughout 46 states. They were best known for massive demonstrations, hunger marches, and rent strikes. Councils mobilized hundreds, sometimes thousands, quickly to march on city halls or relief offices when benefits were threatened. They were also able to mobilize scores of supporters at a moment's notice to stop evictions. Councils often mobilized the unemployed to bolster picket lines during strikes. This undercut the recruitment of scabs. By 1935, the National Unemployed Council merged with other socialist unemployed groups led by the Socialist Party and A.J. Musty to form the Workers' Alliance. According to sociologist Chad Allen Goldberg, the Workers' Alliance worked to secure, quote, more WPA jobs, higher wages for WPA workers, and application of new federal labor laws to the WPA. Goldberg attributes their demise by 1941 to a combination of factors, including the rise of a powerful anti-labor coalition of Republicans and Southern Democrats, red-baiting, and internal political conflicts. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to the IAFF podcast for sharing the story of the 1978 Memphis strike. Look for their show, the IAFF podcast, on your favorite podcast platform. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time.